0: This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ.
1: This sermon
0: is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament.
1: Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 17. After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. But that night the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar?" Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all your enemies. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him, as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, Lord God, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, my God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. You, Lord God, have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men. What more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant, Lord. For the sake of your servant and according to your will, You have done this great thing and made known all these great promises. There is no one like you, Lord, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whose God went out to redeem a people for himself and to make a name for yourself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You made your people, Israel, your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord, let the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house be established forever. Do as you promised so that it will be established and that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, The Lord Almighty, the God over Israel, is Israel's God. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. You, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. So your servant has found courage to pray to you, You, Lord, our God. You have promised these good things to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Lord, have blessed it, and it will be blessed forever. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Lord God, the word that goes forth from your mouth does not return empty, but accomplishes that which you intend. Now plant your word within us and pour out your spirit upon us so that we may bear good fruit for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So I don't know if any of you can guess what the least visited country in the world is in terms of number of tourists. France is number one. I think about a quarter of a billion tourists every year visit France. But the country with the least tourists is the little island nation of Tuvalu, which is in Polynesia, about halfway between Australia and Hawaii, a little chain of nine islands, and they get less than 4,000 tourists every year. And 1 Chronicles is kind of like the Tuvalu of the Old Testament, of the entire Bible, because based on average number of sermons per chapter, 1 Chronicles is the least preached book of the Bible, followed by 2 Chronicles. They don't get many strangers around these parts. People might look at you a little funny as you wander around this book. And I think the reason that we find this book so forbidding that no one here would raise their hands and say, this is my favorite book of the Bible. It's because of these first nine chapters of genealogy at the beginning of First Chronicles. It's like a dense belt of mangroves that you have to hack your way through to get to the heartland of this book. I think First Chronicles chapters 1 to 9 are the most unreadable chapters in the entire Bible. And I know all of scripture is profitable and useful for building us up in righteousness, but not equally profitable or equally useful because there are these long lists of unpronounceable names. I was almost tempted to make it my text today just to see Kenneth struggling through all those names on stage. It might have broken him. They're tough. But you know, it's good to remember that although these names are strange to me, they're not strange to God. Because all those weird names are the names of people and families who walked with God, who journeyed with him in this world, and all of them played a small role Maybe a very small, but also a significant role in the great drama of redemption. And God does not want a single one of these people to be forgotten. Now, I'm not one of those weirdos who goes to the movies and then when it's over, just sits there for 10 minutes watching all the credits roll past. Some people are like that. But there is one movie that I will wait to see the credits. Michelle and I got to do like a little bit of voice work in a film in Georgia And when it comes out, I will listen for myself and Michelle for like five seconds speaking on the radio in the background. And I will wait and watch the credits so I can see my name rolling up there. That will be very exciting. You know what? However little our names and stories matter to other people, they matter to God. They matter to God. And if we belong to Jesus... God has written all of our names down in the Lamb's book of life. God's own personal record of gratitude for all those who live their little lives doing their best to honor him. So maybe those nine chapters of difficult genealogy do have something to teach us. You know, in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Chronicles are actually placed at the very end, the final two books of the Hebrew Bible. And they're kind of a recapitulation, a summing up of the whole history of the story of Israel. The first word in First Chronicles is Adam. They start at the very beginning. And the list of names moves very rapidly through Noah toward Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then carefully documents all the clans of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Chronicler is especially focused on two tribes. The tribe of Judah and the tribe of Levi. Judah, of course, is the royal tribe. That's where the house of David comes from. And Levi is the priestly tribe, the people who have been set aside to serve God in his temple. And this sort of brings up the twin themes of this book that constantly interweave, kingship and worship. They're always winding around each other throughout the 29 chapters of this book, including chapter 17, which Kenneth just read for us. Kingship. And worship. When all is said and done, when we stand back and look at the whole history of Israel, those are the major themes, kingship and worship. Because the whole reason for Israel's very existence is to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests set aside from the ordinary people of the world to be the place of God's awesome presence on earth. Their whole national life was meant to be a continual song of praise rising up to their creator. Remember, that was the very reason that God had rescued Israel from a life of slavery in Egypt. Let my people go, God tells Pharaoh through Moses, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. Worship is the reason for deliverance, is the reason for God calling Israel. But as the history of Israel shows, true worship needs righteous leadership. There are many unrighteous leaders in the Old Testament, many failed and disappointing leaders who draw the people astray. But when there are good leaders, when there are true kings, they're taking God's flock and leading them beside the still waters and into the green pastures of God's presence. That's what kings are supposed to do. That is what their political power is meant to be used for. And so the aspect of David's reign that 1 Chronicles focuses on is not the battle's and the intrigues, and the relationships. It's about questions like these. How is David going to set up the orders of Levites, and doorkeepers, and musicians? There are chapters and chapters about all those details. How he conquers Jerusalem, and brings the ark up to Mount Zion. And of course, David's dream to build a temple for God. You know, we're actually doubling back today, and covering some ground we did earlier, because 1 Chronicles, covers the same period as 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is like a second telling of the story in a more compressed way and with some big differences. There are some chapters in Chronicles that just take a chapter from 1st or 2nd Samuel and just plunk it right in without any changes, really. But what's really interesting comparing these two books is what Chronicles leaves out from Samuel's account of David. It basically drops anything that reflects badly on David. First and second Samuel tell a very complex story about a human figure, someone who, yes, he loves God, but he also has dirty hands. David is doing some kind of nasty things to maintain power and to hold on to power. He's getting people assassinated. There are murders there are a story that is not even mentioned in Chronicles. They skip over that completely. And even the story of David's time in the wilderness described in first Samuel, which shows him weak and vulnerable being hunted down by King Saul. And we have many, many chapters of David in the wilderness skipped over entirely in Chronicles. In other words, this book is giving us a very sanitized and a very idealized portrait of King David. We might wonder like, is this really honest isn't this like the way that, you know, we craft a resume or a dating profile? And we're not telling lies exactly, but we're taking a few very selective truths that we use to paint a misleading picture of ourselves. We might wonder if Chronicles is doing the same thing. Well, we might, except there's no attempt to suppress or to remove First and Second Samuel from the Bible. They're just placed there right beside each other. One very human portrait, one very ideal portrait of David. And everyone who read Chronicles was already well aware of all the dirty deeds that David did. You know, I think that by leaving out the seemier side of David's life, the chronicler is not pretending they didn't happen. He's just showing that they don't matter in the grand scheme of God's plan. And, you know, we're also so quick to jump on the failings of others. And for myself, I feel like over the last 10 years, I've become much more cynical about people I used to admire. But I think we forget that all of us need our own biographies to be cleaned up by the divine editor. Things that we ourselves need to be stamped out of our own story. And I feel this is kind of like a gracious reminder to all of us that When our lives, in the end, pass through the fire of God's love, all our sins and all our failings and all our mistakes will be burnt up because they've already been born by Christ and carried into the emptiness of God's forgetfulness. And only that which is true and good and beautiful within us will shine forth as our true self because that's what Jesus has worked in us by his Spirit. Samuel tells the human story of David, but maybe Chronicles tells God's view of David. And in David's case, flawed as this man is, and he's got some serious failings, not just sins, but crimes. Somehow, David and his dynasty have been chosen and anointed by God to carry the hope of Israel and the world. And now we come to 1 Chronicles chapter 17. After many years of trials and troubles and difficulty and many adventures, at last, David is secure and he's settled in his palace. He can finally step back and take a deep breath and look around and take stock of his life. And one day while he's hanging out with his friend, Nathan the prophet, David hints at something that's been bothering him. He says to Nathan, look at this. Here I am living in this luxurious palace of cedar and the ark of our covenant God is just sitting there in a tent. And that feels wrong. And as David looks at how he's been blessed and protected and cared for by God, he's starting to feel a little guilty sitting back and resting. And though that's all that David says, he doesn't need to say anything more because Nathan picks up that there's a great plan on David's heart a plan to build a temple for God. You know, there are many stories in the ancient Near East and like Egypt and Assyria and these countries around Israel where a king came to power, he destroyed his enemies, he made himself secure, and then he would build a temple to his patron God, both to avoid their anger for ingratitude and also to secure further blessings from the God. And what David's doing to Nathan is so obviously the right and appropriate thing the prophet doesn't even inquire of God. He gives the king an immediate thumbs up. Like, this is an awesome idea. God is with you. Whatever is on your heart, go and do it. But then that night, Nathan gets a visit from the God. He should have consulted. The word of the Lord comes to Nathan to correct him. And it turns out that God does not want David to build a temple. David might have a good heart. He might have noble ambitions. It's still not what God wants. And just because we have good hearts and noble ambitions doesn't mean we're automatically aligned with the will of God. And God says to David through Nathan, you're not going to build me a house. Why would I need a house? I haven't lived in a house ever since the time I rescued Israel from Egypt. Till this moment, I've lived in this tent, taking this makeshift shelter from one location to the other, living in a very mobile on the road kind of way. And I've never asked any of Israel's leaders to build me a house. It's as though God wants to head off a very alluring, but very dangerous idea. The idea that if Israel builds a temple, they can somehow pin down and control God, that they can bind him permanently to themselves to get him securely in their corner. And there's this danger of worshiping even the true God in a fundamentally pagan way. God does this for me, I do that for him, he does that for me, I do that for him, and we make sure that we're not getting too deep into his debt, and that sometimes we feel I need to do something costly and dramatic for God so I don't feel bad about myself and so I can get him securely in my corner. The kind of sacrifice that even a righteous prophet like Nathan will assume is a good thing and is from God, but that actually totally misunderstands the way that God wants to relate with us. And I wonder if there are some people like David here today, people maybe who have even moved across the world to serve God in a lifetime of sacrifice, but whose idea of God is quite skewed. However much people might applaud you as a hero... You're so focused on achieving things for God, you're unable to stop and simply receive from him and learn that receiving from God is not a periodic thing we do once in a while. It's the permanent state of our relationship with him, with our hands open. And so God is not going to let David take the initiative in this relationship. However ambitious David's project will be, God is always going to be the one who drives the plan forward. And speaking through Nathan, God reminds David of all the goodness to him in the past. I took you from the pasture. You were just a shepherd tagging after sheep. And I made you a prince over my people Israel. I was with you everywhere. You went and I mowed down your enemies before you. God took care of everything. And David was well aware of that. That's the reason David's feeling a little bad about himself right now and feeling the need to do something for God to even the score. Then God says, David you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. There's kind of a play on words here, right? House can either be a temple for God or it can be a dynasty or a dynasty if you're British. God, instead of allowing David to build him a temple, is going to establish David's dynasty on the throne. The very thing you thought you were going to give to me, I'm going to give to you in a far greater way than you could have imagined. Oh yes, there is going to be a costly lengthy construction project, and something glorious is going to be built. But I'm the one, God says, who's going to undertake that project. Sit back down in your seat, David. I know you always need to be moving and doing something for me. Sit back down. I'm not going to take something from your hand. I'm going to pry it open to put something even bigger in it. I'm going to make the score of blessing even more unbalanced. This passage, Peter Lightheart writes, highlights the ultimate absurdity of reciprocity in dealings with God. It's foolish to think that we can trade on equal terms with God. He writes, By reminding David that he needs no house, Yahweh reminds David of the utter asymmetry of their relationship. The way David relates to God is not a mirror of the way that God relates to David. It's completely an unequal relationship. The gifts... And the blessing and the joy in the life go one way, flowing from God down to human beings. God doesn't make contracts, He makes covenants. And God, in the Bible, unilaterally chooses and blesses people from Abraham down onwards. And yes, God calls for a response of loyalty and obedience, but only as a way for us to press further into God's blessing, into the relationship. Not as a way of paying God back. God doesn't need a temple. He doesn't need anything from you. He shows up not to take, but to give. Out of his infinite fullness. He's not showing up to demand from slaves. He's here to bless his children. God does not need anything from you today. That's really good news. God doesn't need anything from us today. He just wants to be with us. He just wants to be with us. And God tells David, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to, out of the blue, totally unexpected, announce these incredible promises for you. David, when your life is complete... And you're buried with your ancestors. I'm going to raise up your son to succeed you a son from your own body. And I'm going to firmly establish his rule. He's going to build a house to honor me and I will guarantee his kingdom's rule forever. I'll be a father to him. He'll be a son to me. I will never remove my gracious love from him as I did from the one who preceded you. And I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. And his throne will always be there, rock solid. This is one of the most important texts in the entire Old Testament. And yes, in a limited way, it points to David's son Solomon and the kings of Judah who will follow. But man, it shouts for a greater fulfillment. Because who is this person who's not only going to build a house for God, but have his throne established forever? Who can we say that of? Who is the son of David, who is also going to be called the son of God, whose kingdom will be established without end? How could you possibly come to the end of the Old Testament and close those 39 books and feel like, yes, this promise has already been met in these pages? We are waiting for someone greater than Solomon because God's awesome promise to David only finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. David's son and David's Lord. And the supreme statement of God's gracious favor to Israel and the world is in giving them a king whose reign is never going to fail. A king who needs no whitewashing. Someone whose biography requires no editing. Someone who's going to deliver God's people from all their fears and all their enemies and all their trials and bring them fully and forever into God's presence. These promises weren't given to David for his sake alone. The king is there for the sake of the people. And God gives Jesus to settle God's people in the land, to give us a home, to protect us from our enemies, and help us to realize our true destiny. And Jesus is the one who comes to build God's true temple. A temple to which the Temple of Solomon only faintly pointed. Jesus came to take all these Jews and Gentiles and build us together into a temple of living stones where God would live forever. Ah, there are so many shaky kings in the Old Testament. Even the best of them are shaky kings who would have dropped and smashed the covenant if God had entrusted it to them. God has a better king in mind and a better covenant. A covenant, as Dale Ralph Davis writes, that death will not annul, that sin cannot destroy, and time will not exhaust firmly in the hands of Christ. Well, there was so much that David could not understand about what God was promising, but he knew it was something great. And after David receives this word, he goes into God's presence and sits before God. I feel like that posture is significant. Stop moving, stop achieving, and sit and realize I've received something magnificent from God. And David sits there stunned and overwhelmed by the kindness of the Lord. And he asks God, "Who am I, and who is my family that these things should be spoken of us?" There's massive asymmetry here. God's gift is so utterly out of proportion to who I am and what I deserve that I can only sit there with my mouth open. And really, who is Israel that God wants to bless her so much? A wandering, rebellious, difficult people. And the Old Testament is chapter after chapter of not just the patience, but the overwhelming grace of God who is unswervingly determined, these people will be blessed. And really, who are we, brothers and sisters? Can we really sit here and congratulate ourselves and feel like what we've been given is proportionate to what we deserve? We're sitting here as ransomed, redeemed, restored, forgiven people. Sons and daughters of the living God, our past, our present, and our future, secure in Christ. And God says, no matter how much you try to give to me, you are always going to be a receiver. The debt will never be settled. The score will never be balanced. It's never going to be even between us. I'm always going to pour out my fullness on you. And all we can do is sit before God in worship and in prayer. What does David ask from God in this chapter? Nothing beyond what God had said, only this. God, do what you have promised. You've said these things, God. Now, do what you have promised. Isn't that the heart of all true prayer? retorting God's promises back to him, taking the word of God and holding it open before him and saying, Lord, this is what you have said. Now keep your word because every one of God's promises for us is yes. And amen in Christ. So let's stop our jittery, nervous movement, our need to constantly be doing things for God. Let's take a deep breath and sits before him in his presence. And let's take a moment now to worship and to pray. Heavenly Father, great covenant God, who are we to be so blessed by you? You've poured out your love upon us. Somehow these promises seemingly out of nowhere have appeared and you've made these declarations over our lives and you've already done so many wonders for us, Lord, in freeing us from sin and Satan and death and putting us in Christ, great David's greater son. And we confess joyfully, Lord, Not resentfully, but joyfully. It's all your grace. It's all your goodness. It's all your generosity. It is all your kindness. Well, Lord, there are things that you have called us to do. We do want to be used in your kingdom. We do want to be loyal, obedient subjects of King Jesus. May we never do that in a way that acts as though we could earn something from you, O Lord. Or that forgets your radical kindness to us. We love you. We thank you. We worship you. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.